Hello everyone and welcome back to Fast Charge. I am Dom, your host, and I'm joined this week by Chris, who you should know well. Hello. And Aniron, who's joined us a couple times before, but not in a while. Hello. Uh, cool, we've got a full schedule this week, so we'll get straight to it. We are going to start off by talking about all things Surface Duo, as we've gotten a sort of a fresh look at what we can expect from the software side of Microsoft's dual-screen Android phone, which I still can't believe is actually happening. Uh, from there, we're going to turn to Android 11, uh, as the beta drop or beta announcement was delayed, and we're going to talk about why that was delayed and what's on the way, as some people have managed to already get it. And then finally, we'll talk about why that was delayed, which is the Black Lives Matter protests that are going on in the US right now, which we obviously wanted to acknowledge. Um, we are going to basically focus on the social media side of what's been going on there, the way Twitter and Facebook have been handling it, the way the Blackout Tuesday hashtag kind of uh, swept across social media and accidentally dented into the Black Lives Matter hashtag and caused problems there. So we'll get to that at the end. But without further ado, the Surface Duo. Uh, so, Aniron, you have been doing most of our coverage on the Surface Duo. I'll admit, yep. I know the very basics about this thing. I know it's a dual-screen Android phone. I know Microsoft are making it. I know it will basically be running a... Certainly, not, it's not running Windows, it's running Android, but it's going to be a slightly tweaked version of Android to make the most of the form factor. Can you please fill in some details? Yeah, so this was, it was a Surface Duo and the Surface Neo. They both announced back um, last October. Um, but they always kind of got this um, kind of holiday 2020 release date, so they were released a long time in advance. So the uh, the Neos were like running a modified version of Windows 10, but then kind of the interesting one is the Duo, which is like um, Microsoft going back to Android, because obviously it's been quite a few years since Microsoft have made a phone of their own, and obviously it kind of had that Windows phone software. Mm -hmm. So for them to go with Android, it's it's kind of a big change for them. So... Um, but obviously it's not Android as we know it, so it's quite heavily modified So um, to make use of the dual screens. Um, so talking of the dual screens, there's, uh, there's two 5.6-inch um, 1080p displays, um, but, but it's kind of different to a lot of kind of foldables if they're kind of like the screen folds in half or mm -hmm. um, devices that work kind of like that. These are definitely meant to be kind of two screens that can work independently of each other, but then it's kind of the seamless nature of the way they kind of uh, move between things. Like I know drag and drop and things are going to be big features. And then that maybe if it's in landscape mode, say the um, uh, the bottom screen can then become a keyboard or an emoji thing or things like that right. to kind of that it will adapt across lots of different uh, use cases. But then uh, so so the, the latest news is that yesterday we kind of scored, saw some uh, screenshots of like what Microsoft stock apps are gonna um, look like. So it will obviously come running Microsoft's own launcher and it will have Edge as the default browser and things like that. Um, but it kind of, it's it's definitely helpful to see because it's really hard to visualize on, on a, like a completely new form factor and a kind of completely new device what um, a Microsoft device running Android is really gonna look like. Yeah, um, and that's what I found interesting looking at it. Because obviously, as you said, they used to have Windows uh, Windows Mobile, and mm -hmm. this is not that, but they have really gone all in on the Android skin um, in a way that actually we're seeing most of the sort of core phone manufacturers tend to be pulling back a bit now and going trying to skew closer to stock, and we're seeing people like Nokia and Motorola make a lot of fuss about keeping their OS very close to Google's. Uh, Microsoft's first entrance here is 
it's designed to look like a Windows device. I think that's pretty clear. Just the sort of font, the UI, everything, the fact, as you said, that Edge is your default browser, Outlook will be your default email app, things like that. Mm. They're leaning into their own software ecosystem within Android so that when you open it up, it will probably feel more like a, well, like a Surface device, like a Surface device running Windows, but a small one, you know, and although it is Android underneath, they're going to, they do seem to be trying to mask that as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another interesting point is that um, it's kind of not running the absolute top line spec. So it's got the Snapdragon 855 from last year. I heard that was something to do with them. Um, they'd kind of designed the device before the 865 got released at the end of last year. And yeah. that requires a separate 5G chip, which they then couldn't fit in. So they've yeah. kind of gone for those slightly lower specs. It's this weird one where they've hurt themselves by announcing so early and getting to work on it so early. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, apparently they designed all the internals, figured the 865 might let them have an integrated 5G modem or, or might let them skip 5G entirely. Mm. But actually the way Qualcomm makes that chip is... If you buy the 865, you have to buy the X55 modem with it, and mm-hmm. they are separate chips, and so you can't have an 865 without a 5G modem. So, as you said, you need to design space inside to fit both those components, and Microsoft didn't, so they're stuck with an 855, which is still, you know, it's worth saying, that's still a great processor, and... I can't remember what, we saw a phone, was it the Realme X3 SuperZoom, Chris, that had the 855 Plus last week i feel like so that is admittedly the the later sort of upgraded version of the 855 but still like you know they're not the only company still using the 2019 chipsets and, and making it work i think um, the difference would be that microsoft probably won't draw attention to it um yes real me were real me were saying this is the only phone with this processor and yeah um the the camera the feature or whatever but yeah i would i would have thought microsoft would uh We'll be focusing on the design and the and the exactly. software to, to pitch this. The, the challenge for them, obviously, is it's presumably going to be a very premium device in terms of price point, which mm. the Realme wasn't. That's a that's a sort of mid range phone, so you can forgive an older processor. But we don't know pricing yet, obviously. Um, but it's I guess fair to bet this is going to be certainly in the region of and probably above the thousand pound thousand dollar line. Yeah. Um, and when you're asking people to spend that much and saying it's a processor that by that point will be a year and a half old or something, maybe even two years if they still hit the holiday 2020 release window, um, people might sort of reject that a little bit, especially because other specs are kind of, you know, the camera is, I think, 11 megapixels, did I see? Which so, it might yeah. be fine. There are great phones with 12 megapixel cameras. So that's, you know, not not everything, but it's the kind of number people latch onto. And, and I can't imagine Microsoft's, you know, Microsoft don't do camera stuff generally, so I can't imagine this mm. is going to be challenging the Pixels or the iPhone for camera quality. But mm. I guess that just reflects the aim of this. Presumably, they're kind of pitching this as a productivity phone. Yeah, that's interesting because I wrote an opinion piece a couple of uh, a couple of months back about the saying that they were obviously building it for being productivity on the go. But then, if I looked at that and looked at the, the Surface Neo, which has got two bigger screens. It's still fairly portable. Then I was struggling to see why people would use this product, this device specifically. I guess mm. the idea is to try and make it. Well, actually, Microsoft haven't explicitly said it's a phone, but everything <laughs> suggests it is. <laughs> but they're almost trying to pitch it as as much of a computer in your pocket as possible, kind of like yeah. the Note has done with the stylus. Although I don't, 
I'm not sure if there's going to be any stylus support for the duo. But you I would... think I thought I saw that it would, okay, but I might yeah. have met you. I might have misread that. Yeah. So, um, but I guess it's the, all these kind of first generation uh, foldables or dual screen devices obviously aren't necessarily aimed at the mass market. They're kind of testing the waters in a way, and obviously you've seen how much kind of the surface line has expanded in recent years that it's kind of um, the logical next step is to move into these kind of different form factors. So it's kind of Microsoft experimenting because it's kind of had a reputation, a slight, very slight reputation for kind of keeping it safe with some of its releases, particularly kind mm. of the latest Surface laptops or the latest Surface Pros. So I think it's trying to really prove that it can be fun and quirky and something a bit different, really. Yeah. I mean, what the thing I find interesting about the space it's wading into is it's kind of a halfway house between um, LG's recent phones with its sort of dual screen case uh, and the premium foldables, which in itself is a weird space because I've always described the LG phones as a halfway house between a regular flagship and a foldable. Hmm. Um, so they're, you know, regular phones that you can slot into a case that has a second screen on a hinge that you can then close. So it has basically this form factor, except it's kind of like an optional version of this form factor. You can use it as a standard single screen phone or slot it into the case to get this Surface Duo experience when you want it. Um, I, you know, it's interesting that LG haven't gone in for this proper full dual screen device form factor, whether that's because of engineering difficulties or cost, or maybe they are working on it and they'll have one eventually, who knows? Um, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether people prefer this to LG's kind of fudged version, with the caveat that this will almost certainly cost more, um, and is going to be hamstrung by the design because again, it's this weird thing where because they announced it so early and locked in a form factor so early, it's got these big bezels and it's quite kind of chunky looking and and. Again, in a way that seemed super cool when they announced it a year ago, but then what other phones look like moved on so much since the duo got announced that it somehow looks both futuristic and quite backwards. Mm. It sort of feels like we should be getting the second one, you know, sort of leaked about now. Yeah. And the, that, you know, the, the duo should have gone on sale maybe in January this year and, and uh, they could have made, just... made some improvements now. Yeah, or that they should have just been the concept device. You know, they show it off on stage, yeah. say, look, we're working on this dual screen thing. And then the release version comes out and the bezels are smaller and the displays are higher res and, and uh, it's, you know, it's got a later processor or whatever. But I suppose um, there's some small chance they could cancel it and do some different version or somehow upgrade it to better processor and stuff. I don't know. I think at this point they're probably pretty locked in and they didn't kind of <laughs> commit to putting it out. But um, I would guess what we'll see is that they'll, they'll they'll use it to test the water and probably maybe even less look at sales of it and more look at reception of it to judge whether to then do a second gen that has the chance to tidy those up once they've gotten through all those engineering hurdles around it. Um, but yeah, it still mm -hmm. feels to me like this is a gen one that should have stayed concept or internal to then have something that they can put out that looks slicker because elements of this are really cool and a dual screen device i love the idea and and if it can hit the same use case as a fold like the galaxy fold or the huawei mate uh, mate x but be cheaper because it's not foldable um 
you know, if they can do that, that's great. And that's that's how I've championed the LG dual screen things, which I'm a big fan of because they give you a lot of the same functionality, um, but at a cheaper price. If Microsoft can deliver that, that's great. I just think people are going to hit them hard on the old processor and the, the, the old looking screens, which is a shame because it's super cool otherwise. And what I will say from what we've seen on the software is Microsoft having its own suite of Android apps and an ecosystem that people already know in Office, in Outlook, in Edge, and all of that, um, they can build in a lot more of the software support than LG ever could. Because the problem with the LG ones mm. is it's a cool concept, but Android itself doesn't really do much with the dual screen, and no one uses LG's own apps. You know, at least some people will, but not that many. Most people who are the, the kind of really techie people who might be early adopters of this kind of form factor are actually the kind of people who are also going to immediately switch off the OEM default apps and go into their own preferred version. Um, so I, I've always felt the LG phones haven't been able to software side and make the most of the form factor. And that's a space I guess Microsoft can. Um, I just want to make sure, I want them to have the hardware to match how good the software experience looks like it could be. Yeah. I like the idea of this as a, a a device that I carry around as as a business phone, like <laughs> yeah. slash productivity thing, as well as my personal phone. Like yeah. it would be a really nice second device. Yeah. Um, but you know, obviously that's not particularly the idea. Um, <laughs> but it does look cool, and it, and like we've said, it's it's sort of got the the similar issues to the Motorola Razor, where it's it's a nice device to look at but the specs don't match the price yeah mm-hmm. um, well we you know i guess on, on our expectation of what the price will be maybe microsoft are going to surprise us and charge mm. 600 for it but true uh, i'm saying that without knowing the price but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we, we we kind of can guess roughly where it's going to be um i do wonder with this stuff how much it just comes down to like having the r d clout for hardware of like a samsung or a huawei that you can work on those new form factors and get them affordable quickly enough and polish quickly enough and afford to take the hit on the first gen and i wonder if obviously microsoft has a lot of r&d but whether their hardware side is well equipped enough to handle this kind of stuff in the same way that motorola it just felt like they weren't really there on the razor they hadn't made a phone like that before and they hadn't you know weren't ready to put something out of the same quality as what samsung could because samsung could just throw so much more money at it and it had so much more expertise in that kind of high-end experimental hardware that i just worry that microsoft don't because as we said the surfaces have been great but mostly quite conservative you know they haven't mm. pushed those um and uh yeah so it's it's i mean it's a great change with the duo and the neo that they're starting to do that and i'm excited and i hope the rumors that they might launch early are true because that's been one of the bits of speculation is that the, the device is basically done it's good to go and they could launch it before holiday 2020 mm. if they wanted to we'll see yeah that's interesting um because I think they have just haven't been afraid to kind of show it off ahead of release. So I know a number of like um, Microsoft's um, senior staff have kind of been tweeting about it or um, mm. Instagram posts of the camera or things like that. So they're trying to show it being a really cr- critical part of their workflow. Yeah. Because I think, like you said, the main thing is it might be an additional device on top of your smartphone. And they're trying to make it that device yeah. that you'll carry around everywhere with you. Which makes a lot of sense, I think, if they can uh, hit... In a way, especially if they're going for a business case, price matters less because your company buys it for you and they'll be targeting the kind of companies that can afford to splash out on this kind of thing and Mm. buy a lot for key members of staff. But um, 
Yeah, we'll see. So I think the software will be what makes or breaks that. Um, uh, it will ship with Android 10, but I think Microsoft has said it is going to work to get Android 11 on it as soon as possible after launch, uh, which is a great excuse to lead into topic number two, Android 11. Uh, so we've been expecting the Android 11 beta to kick off very soon. And Google had announced that on June 3rd, it would reveal the beta and all of that and how to get hold of it. Whereas it's just been in a developer preview until now. Uh, that has not happened. Uh, Google tweeted that it would be postponing the beta launch uh, indefinitely. It hasn't said when it will arrive. It didn't specifically say that this was due to the Black Lives Matter protests. But I think the phrasing they used was that this is no time to celebrate. Uh, so I think it's pretty clear that's what they're talking about. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen other companies do the same thing. Um, Sony has delayed its PlayStation 5 games reveal that was set to happen uh, today, the launch day of, of this episode. Um, that's been postponed indefinitely. We've seen a few others in gaming, quite a few gaming publishers have delayed events, other tech events. Um, so people are holding things off uh, in respect of what's going on in the States right now, which is good. Um, one weird little quirk is that something went wrong in Google and some people got the beta anyway. So we kind of know what's going to be in there, even though it hasn't launched because, uh, a couple pixel, I think it was pixel four XL owners reported that they managed to get through and get the beta downloaded. Uh, and, uh, XDA developers have done a, a breakdown of the sort of features we're looking at in the beta. Um, I don't want to go too in-depth here because I think there's a limit to how much people really care about like the minutiae of uh, OS updates. Um, but there are some cool little bits I kind of wanted to highlight. Um, I think one of my the ones I'm most interested in is app suggestions on your home screen, which is basically taking a, a feature I think you can get on the Pixel phones right now, which is in your app drawer. It will suggest apps you, you might want to use. Um, based on your behavior and Google is apparently confident enough in how well this works that for Android 11 it looks like they're going to be bringing that to the bottom row of your home screen uh, the idea being that basically if there's a space in there it will then fill that in with apps that it thinks it wants you it thinks you want to use right now based on what you do so if it knows it's the kind of time of day where you're normally uh, you know checking the news it might be whatever app you use for the news or your music app or whatever or if you know is that you go straight from Twitter to Instagram, maybe after you're on Twitter, it'll then drop Instagram in there because you know that's the like path you take through your, using your phone. Um, I would never use this because I'm really like obsessive about managing my home screen and what apps go where. Uh, mm. But I'm I, I know I may not be the only person who's like that. Uh, what about what do you guys think? Uh, I can try. Well, I have that sort of feature on my Pixel Three, although it's not right. on the main home. I can try and give you a little demo. But yeah, it's not on the main home screen. So if I swipe yeah. up to load the app drawer, those apps at the yeah. bottom mm. are the suggested apps, and they change, yeah, throughout the day. So uh, most of the time, it comes up with like Google Photos and uh, and stuff. But I yeah, because it's not on the home screen, and therefore doesn't make my home screen look different like every five minutes. Uh, I quite like it because. Mm. It basically means because you have to swipe up a second time to then get the full app yeah. draw. It basically it does a pretty darn good job at predicting, you know, because there's five there. There's a pretty good chance it's um, 
pulled up one of the ones that I want. So do you, it's, do you find it, that you use it a lot? Well. Then? Yeah. Oh yeah, like the amount of times I actually open the full draw is next to never. Right. Okay. Because from those from the five suggestions, it's almost always got the one that I want. Nice. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I I hadn't. I. I mean, I used the Pixel Four. That's the last Pixel I used for, and I used that for a couple of weeks. I somehow completely missed this feature. I don't know if it was one that's been added since or if it was there at the time and I just somehow didn't clock that it was there because I never used the Pixel 3. Um, but I like the idea. I Again, like I said, I'm kind of obsessive enough about my home screen layout that I don't think I'd, I'd want to leave it up to Google. But I can totally see that actually for a lot of people, this is great. And if it works as well as you've found it working, it's a very cool idea to have it do that. And actually, I imagine it would be great for people who like a kind of empty home screen and just to have the wallpaper very visible. But you could still trust that at any given time, sort of the five apps you're most likely to want might might be there ready for you, um, which is cool. There's a few other little things that they've thrown in, uh, some new icon shapes, some of which I like, um, one of which I hate. Uh, there's sort of um, a sort of <laughs> square <laughs> with the corners chopped off, uh, which is which is all right. There's one called Pebble, which I, I quite like. It's just kind of like a circle, but squished a bit. So it looks a bit more like a sort of rock pebble shape. Looks a bit kind of organic, natural, um, rather than a perfect circle. Uh, the one I hate is, I think it's called Vessel. And it's like a, a square, but the sides are ribbed. Um, like little roundy bits on the side. I don't get it. It looks weird. Why we don't want that on the phone? I, um, speaking of other things we don't want, I know I've ranted about this on Fast Charge before, but there is the support for bubble notifications and like chat heads oh. for more apps uh, that is making its way through the process i'm not happy um <laughs> there's uh support for something that was in the first developer preview and then disappeared i think but um uh music controls in the quick draw that you swipe down from the top so a more detailed music player that pops up in there which i think is a really nice idea we've obviously lots of apps all the big ones will do that in their notification but this will basically put it right in that quick draw at the top, giving you like quick and easy access to it in compatible apps, which I think is cool. Um, that sounds small good. Change, but... I, I get those on my Pixel 3, and a lot of them seem to lock there unless the app gets closed. So that even though you've finished playing music yeah. like two hours ago, it's still there, and you can't just swipe it away. Mm. Um, yeah. And I often, get, like, I often get two showing me basically the same thing for various reasons. So you get two sets of play controls for the same thing. I find my Spotify one sometimes gets confused and still just shows the song that was on like five songs ago. Um, <laughs> though I can't imagine this will actually fix that because that's probably a Spotify problem. But um, yeah, it's cool. I mean, this all comes also after a, a week. We've seen a lot of Android software stuff because it's the week that we got the latest Pixel feature drop um, as well. So all of the Pixel phones, uh, even even the Pixel 1 still got one of these features, I think. Um, but yeah, there's been some new features rolling out on the Pixel line. Um, kind of continuing the trend of stuff Google's been focusing on. There was a nice, as a safety, a new safety feature. They had the car crash one before, and now there's one for if you're sort of um, going out on your own is kind of the intention. So you can set a sort of timer that you have to check in by, uh, and if you don't check in by that time, then your phone screen becomes this sort of display that gives you quick access to like emergency services and a trusted contact to, to get in touch with them. And then if you don't respond to that within a certain amount of time, it sends a message to that contact uh, and gives them your location, I think. 
Um, it doesn't automatically phone emergency services just to avoid that, like spamming 911 or 999 with stuff like that. But that's um, a cool idea. It's, a, it's a, you know, a simple thing, but I think that's the first any of the big phone companies have done anything like that. Um, and that's on most of the pixels now. Um, the one I actually really like is an update to the clock with a, a bedtime section in the clock app, which is basically taking some of those controls we've seen dotted around for like nighttime modes and putting them together in the clock, which I think makes sense and just consolidate them together. So you can sort of set the display to go grayscale at a certain time or like remove blue light. Obviously, you control your alarm. Um, they built some sleep sounds into the clock app there. Uh, and also a sort of focused version of a screen time thing that just tells you which apps you're using late at night and sort of past your normal bedtime so that you can kind of see like when you're staying up later than you should, it will tell you, well, yeah, you spent half an hour reading Twitter in bed getting angry. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't uh, think I need the phone to tell me that I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, small tweaks as we've always seen, but you can be sure some of these will end up working their way into a major Android version because... A lot of these pixel features eventually filter out into Android in general after sort of Google's given pixel owners their little period of exclusivity. Just cool. a quick, sorry, just a quick, quick one on the um, on kind of those bedtime features. I wondered if because um, you know there's those apps that kind of uh, can monitor your movement and then wake you up at like your lightest point of sleep. Mm. I wondered if that was something that they could maybe introduce into future versions because it seems like something that people are in. There's enough interest there. But it feels like that could be like the next stage to kind of, and then that would obviously, I don't know if there would then be integration in that app, maybe with um, some proper dedicated kind of sleep tracking devices, just to give kind of a bit more insight. Because I think obviously you can, people can look at like how long they've slept, but then like the quality of sleep is kind of becoming a real big thing now. Yeah. I mean, I guess the challenge with that is like you said, it's all integration because... Mm. Well, actually, so I was about to say Google doesn't make its own trackers or anything like that, but obviously Google bought Fitbit. So I could easily believe that a Fitbit integration in there could be something down the line, depending on how Google decides to handle its Fitbit ownership. Um, because, yeah, you just don't want to have that functionality baked in if it doesn't work with the fitness trackers or if somebody doesn't have a fitness tracker and it's taking up space in their clock app. But Right, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure this is something Google purchasing Fitbit must have been in a big way at trying to figure out how better to move into that market and how better to improve its software around that stuff because it's that's kind of an area Google itself neglected for a while, I would say. I and, mean, they uh, could track your movement if you put your pixel under your pillow, but you're yeah. giving you could, you're giving people less reason to buy a Fitbit then. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I'm not sure, I don't know how well that would work really, especially compared to what an actual Fitbit tracker can do. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure eventually that will be something they're going to be looking at once they've got proper sort of fit. I can totally see Fitbit being baked more into that stuff in within whatever legal limits they're allowed to with antitrust stuff and monopolies and blah, blah, blah. Um, cool. I think that's probably enough on that. So, yeah, I mean, we already mentioned at the beginning of this segment the Android 11 beta was delayed uh, reading between the lines because of the Black Lives Matter protests that are going on in the US. So we kind of wanted to touch on that. I didn't want to put out an episode this week and ignore that entirely. Um, it's obviously been a really strange week to be watching the news, especially we're all based in the UK where it, it's, you know, 
we have our own issues around police brutality and, and race relations and all of that, but it certainly feels like we're looking at something that's very different going on in the US and we haven't had anything on the same level here. Um, I kind of wanted to focus, because we cover phones on here, looking at the social media angle of this felt like the best way we could kind of take a look at what's going on, um, especially because all of this has kind of come just in the wake last week of Trump's executive order um, against Twitter, which was a retaliation to Twitter uh, essentially trying to fact-check his tweets. So maybe it's best to start from the beginning there and kind of work through this in order. So Twitter had started fact-checking more tweets and it had started putting disclaimers on a couple of Trump's tweets um, uh, about sort of um, whether what he'd said was true or not and giving links to fact-checking resources and that kind of thing. Trump didn't like that at all. Uh, fair to say. <laughs> and he basically announced he would be signing an executive order to sort of like rein in social media and rein in Twitter and he's kind of said things that he'd quit Twitter if he could but you know, like he needs to reach the American people or whatever which is nonsense he's clearly an addict just like me and he just needs to accept it um, but yeah so he signed an executive order which is one of those funny things where it's just kind of transparent revenge against Twitter because it's got nothing to do with the moderation issue Um what the executive order he signed is basically trying to do is uh, attack a bit of uh, the US law that protects social media companies from liability for the content that they post. So essentially means, you know, right now Twitter can't be sued because someone tweets something that's like defamatory or, or whatever. Trump's trying to damage that so that Twitter becomes vulnerable to a lot more lawsuits um, from users. The perverse thing about that is surely the only result is Twitter would have to moderate an awful lot more, which is exactly what he's trying to stop. So I don't really understand the structure of this at all. But there you go. So it's sort of like naked revenge against Twitter. Um, this is spot more debates because Facebook has not moderated Trump in the same way. Um, uh, so I think, again, tying back into the Black Lives Matter stuff, uh, one of the worst examples was Trump's tweet uh, when he said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, referencing a 60s, uh, something a police chief said in the 60s that was tied to another like race incident. Um, so definitely uh, a really unpleasant thing to say, a horrible line for a president to take, uh, really concerning and basically a threat of violence, right? And all of these platforms kind of say in general that threats to violence are something they ban. Um, Twitter didn't take his tweet down, but they basically hid it behind a little message that warns you that there's content you might not want to see so that you have to choose to click twice to access it. Um, Facebook apparently spent a while deliberating this and decided they didn't want to do anything like that. Um, uh, this did not do sit well with Facebook's employees, in fact. So they ended up with, there were some walkouts. Um, a few hundred Facebook employees basically staged a walkout by taking time off and not going in for work. And I think it's the first time we've seen a lot of Facebook employees be quite vocal uh, in complaining about the company, um, singling out Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Zuckerberg's been the face of this. Like even yesterday, I think he stepped on a he he took a sort of video call in front of the company and, and defended the choice. Uh, said they'd really thought about it and they took the view that historically they've protected uh, state leaders' right to threaten violence, essentially which is a weird thing to really feel the need that you've got to step in and let those dictators be violent and aggressive. Um, so, yeah, we're mm. in this place where there's this weird tension and, and um, this clash between how Twitter and Facebook are handling the two approaches. And didn't some Facebook staff quit as well? I think I saw at least one. Yeah, I've definitely seen a few. I don't know how widespread that's been. Certainly there have been a few people, a few tweets that have gone viral of people saying they've, 
they quit their jobs at Facebook because of all this and they couldn't in good conscience work there anymore. Um, it's, it's always been one of the oddities of Trump that he's a Twitter user and he loves Twitter, except that he now hates Twitter, but he still uses it all the time. But it's really Facebook that I think more than Twitter is responsible for that sort of surge in his popularity and the way, you know, played a bigger part in the 2016 election than Twitter did, I would have thought. Yeah, where's he posting on Facebook then? Can you add him as a friend? <laughs> I, I don't actually know. I assume there's a, a White House account or a, or a Trump page or something. Um, I'm not on. I mean, I have a Facebook account, but I don't touch the thing. Um, yeah, it's a funny one. I think I, I, I'm. I'm honestly surprised to see Twitter. It's been a refreshing change to see Twitter coming out as the good guys in all this because I think for a long time Twitter were the company that refused to moderate, that did very bad thing, that was very, very, very bad at handling the rise of sort of uh, the extreme, the far right and white supremacists and all of that stuff. Um, around all the Charlottesville stuff, Twitter was awful um, and really basically just kind of throwing up its hands and saying, free speech, free speech, we're going to let people say what they want. Um, and it's been nice to see it step up. Um, and it's been obviously depressing to see Facebook not step up at all. And I do wonder how long they can sustain this now if they're basically, A, they're seeing sort of, you know, their own employees protest it. And B, as Twitter steps up its game, it does start to moderate and even moderate the president of the US. Um, how long can Facebook sustain its own sort of <laughs> total neutrality? Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's um, kind of, it's kind of a difficult thing because... Um, I guess these kind of high-profile public figures, they can't be above the regulations. But like you say, that that Trump is so... I guess, yeah, like you said, he was kind of reliant on Facebook more, you'd say, to win the election. But then since then, it's been like his main source for kind of getting information out there and to mm. kind of... And it seems relatively unmoderated, like the White House or things aren't... have just kind of given him free reign with that. Um, so... Yeah, because I'm guessing there would have been occasions in the past if where a regular user would have uh, posted some of the things he'd posted and they might have been, you know, it would have happened a lot sooner. So the fact they're choosing it now, I I guess Trump will think it's deliberate in the run-up to kind of the next uh, US election that it's kind of... Yeah. But also it seemed like it had got to a stage where something had to be done, even to just remind him of his responsibilities i guess and kind of make him be a bit more compliant because he's ultimately he can't control the whole internet and has got to respect these individual sites rules and regulations i guess yeah i mean the election is definitely the wrinkle in all of this that i guess which companies are willing to rock the boat in an election year um and obviously again actually there was this last year i'm gonna be fuzzy on the details here but the the two companies did take very different stances on political advertising right i think twitter essentially ban political adverts entirely, if I'm remembering right. Whereas Facebook again, Facebook again just took the line of, nope, that's fine. Any political ads, we won't fact track them. They're all good. Say whatever you want. As long as you're paying us, like, that's A-OK. <laughs> uh, which, yeah, um, it, it's that hard thing because it feels like there's pressure because if, 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 you know, if Facebook is going to change its policies, it has to do it now because if it just rides it out for another six months, then the election happens and it's all kind of a moot point. Like now is the time that 
people need to put the pressure on Facebook to start moderating more, to start fact-checking more, to start flagging things. Because if it doesn't happen now, then it's too late. I mean, it's, it's arguably already too late because people are going to be so entrenched already in the way they're likely to vote in November. But, um, you know, there's still six months. There's still the time to change people's minds. And, and that's going to be a lot harder if Facebook keeps taking this, like, laissez-faire, it's not our fault if you want to lie on our platform kind of attitude. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, part of the reason we want to, I want to talk about this today as well was I think uh, just today as we're recording... Um, I saw that uh, that has actually been a lawsuit filed against Trump's executive order. So the first legal challenge basically saying that his attack on Twitter is itself illegal and it's violating Twitter's First Amendment rights. So there is already that pushback, which is encouraging. Um, and it does feel like this is kind of one-way traffic and that it's got to go Twitter's way eventually. I guess my question for Twitter, which is obviously doing a lot right, is how far is it willing to go? It's willing mm. to fact-check Trump's tweets it's willing to hide them and put a little just thing where you've got to click through again. But is it willing to ban Trump? Because it kind of feels like that's the only way this ends. Either Trump throws more and more punitive legal measures against Twitter or Twitter just outright goes, no, we've had enough. You're off the platform. That's it. Imagine right. if they do. That would be so amazing. That would be incredible. <laughs> um, absolutely incredible. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see that happen, if only just to see them taking such a strong line on that issue. Um I don't think they will, but I I don't see what happens here if they don't, because this is just going to keep being an issue for them. Um, because if Trump keeps tweeting and keeps having his tweets moderated and fact-checked and hidden and all of that, he's going to keep getting angrier and angrier about it and keep picking fights with them. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on, just because it was kind of one of those interesting little bits of how social media plays into all this stuff, is the Blackout Tuesday stuff that went around which was, I was very unsure whether to take part in it or not because of sort of hearing things in both directions about whether it was good or not. This was a movement that was actually started in the music industry and it was just the idea of don't release any new songs or promote any music on this Tuesday. We're going to have a like blackout from promotional stuff um, to not distract from the protests going on in the States over George Floyd. Um, and then it kind of spread and it very quickly became a, a huge thing. And then it became this thing on Instagram where people started sharing black squares for Blackout Tuesday and just filling their feed. So if you went on Instagram on, on that Tuesday, probably all you saw was a load of black squares filling your feed, which was a great sign of sort of solidarity from a lot of people. But a lot of those people were also using the Black Lives Matter hashtag, which caused a lot of problems because people are using that hashtag and similar ones to keep track of what is going on. Um, a, so that people can follow what's going on in the cities where they are in the US, but also just so that people can catalogue the acts of police violence and things like that, make sure people are on top and spread all that information. And there was this perverse thing where this act of solidarity people were trying to show started drowning out the actual information that needed to be shared and the sort of state of the protests in the US at the time, which was one of those, um, I, you know, it came from good intentions and, and it actually caused a lot of problems, I think. Yeah, it's a shame because it, uh, I saw it starting to go around, obviously, because we're tech journalists, we're, we're on these platforms quite a lot, and I saw it going around quite early on Tuesday and thought, oh, yeah, that's that's quite cool, this sort of digital kneel, like, or like, let's mm. all link digital arms or whatever you want to call it. And then saw, and then 
then quite quickly saw a post saying, no, don't do this because you're, all you're doing is blanking out all the important stuff. You're actually sort of erasing it yeah. um, because people didn't quite understand what they were doing. But it's just a shame because it sort of just spread so quickly and and uh, just seeing a lot of people that wouldn't perhaps normally post something joining in to sort of, I suppose some of them will have done it just so that just for show just to feel like they've taken part and then probably wouldn't post anything afterwards not really realizing what they were doing yeah i mean i think it got better as the day went on because i think people the message that you should not use that hashtag did start to spread so i think i certainly saw some people who went back into their posts and removed the black lives matter hashtag and just left the blackout tuesday hashtag which helped things but it definitely still felt like an odd solidarity thing to me that having previously gone on instagram and seen lots of photos of the protests and photos of police violence and all this stuff about what was going on to be informed and people sharing donation links and uh organizations and all that stuff instead what i saw on tuesday was black squares and i didn't learn you know i couldn't learn more about what was going on i couldn't get an update on what was happening people weren't sharing around ways i could help or support or donate it was just black squares which it felt to me like a bit that kind of easy act of solidarity that's yeah like you said chris people who maybe wouldn't have gotten involved before it felt like a nice way to make a gesture and i get it's all coming from a good place but it was getting in the way Mm. of what the good social media has actually done with all this which is to share this information so quickly so that it can't be hidden so that whenever someone is out there filming and they catch the police doing something illegal or violent or aggressive that can immediately be shared worldwide and and be seen by people all over the world on multiple platforms and stuff like this gets in the way of that, whereas actually that's been, I think, the most powerful weapon of the protesters this time around is that it's even quicker and easier than it has been in the past to uh, share the the footage and the and the images absolutely everywhere. It seems, yeah, I wonder if um, Twitter and Instagram have, particularly Twitter, have uh, some stats on how much things have gone viral compared to normal because... You know, the amount of retweets going on over the last week yeah. must be insanely uh, increased. And like you say, that, you know, these platforms are the best way to get these real, you know, um, accounts of what's going on mm. when seemingly the US media and, and, and stuff are not particularly giving a balanced uh, report of what's happening. So it's a shame that, you know, what was getting so much coverage and spreading really quickly and, and, you know, one of the best examples of how something can go viral and and show everybody what's going on was then just cut silent, basically. Exactly. Um, And I think that's what bothered me is that even aside from blocking the full Black Lives Matter hashtag, it's just it meant there was a day where there wasn't new information on what was happening, or at least not as much as there normally was. you know, and I think the idea of people stopping publishing promotional stuff, not announcing any news, not things like, you know, things like that for a day is great. But the point of that surely is to leave a space for the news of what's going on and what matters to fill. And instead, just then filling that space with black squares <laughs> kind of negates the whole purpose mm. of it. Yeah. And some of like a lot of my Twitter seemingly looked like companies doing it because well, if they don't, then they look bad. So they feel like exactly. they have to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Just, Sorry some, just another point, because obviously um, a lot of the protests would be 
the majority would be young people kind of about their future um and then so many people would so many young people rely on social media for news and to kind of have that worldview that maybe wasn't possible in a mm. pre-internet era because i did notice that maybe um so, some of the mainstream media were a little bit slower to pick up on it so if you were just watching the tv it might have been a few days before you'd kind of realized like the level of outrage at george floyd and things like that yeah so yeah it's difficult because obviously hashtags are such an easy way such a great way of following um specific topics um because i think i know like even the coronavirus one they they couldn't have the same i think think you can have the same topic trending um on the same day said so to come up with like subtly different hashtags and things <laughs> because people there was such obviously like a worldwide interest in it so then there is the difficulty like this situation where there's kind of unintended unintended consequences that can really kind of stifle that flow of information and kind of getting the knowledge out there to as many people as possible i guess yeah and and as chris said i think as well as social media is vital not just because it gets there faster but there's differences in framing and i don't want to say that what you're going to see on social media is always right we i mean we were just talking about the disinformation spreading around in 2016 the election and and the risk of that happening again this year so there's certainly no like oh everything you read on social media is true but there is a difference to the way stuff tends to be portrayed than it is by the mainstream media and certainly as chris said a lot of the u.s approach in mainstream media and actually i would say the same for the uk mainstream media has generally been taking the line of focusing on the violence of the protesters rather than the violence of the police back to the protesters and it's all there in subtle ways about when you use active voice and when you use passive voice and all these tricks that you know make you talk about how someone was shot when it was the police shot him um and things like that so i think certainly for my twitter feed and my Instagram, it's been a lot more of showing what the police are doing and violent acts committed by police that I haven't seen covered very much in my mainstream media, where the focus has more been on the, the looting and the damage caused by protesters. Um, I mean, obviously, what you want really is to get both sides of all of that and know exactly what's going on on every side. But social media at least does raise up that kind of voice that is mostly absent from the mainstream stuff. Um, and I, yeah, other than this sort of Blackout Tuesday thing and obviously these issues around the way Facebook is handling things, the last week has made me feel like social media can be a force for good in a way that I haven't felt like it has been for a long time. I think we've thought so much about the way it's impacted elections and helped the far right spread its message and things like that. It's nice to get a reminder that it, that cuts both ways and it can also be something that, um, you know, can be used to highlight and cast a light on on state oppression as well and movements like this which is really good i mean hope, hopefully the the way the the blackout tuesday thing went a bit wrong mm-hmm. hopefully will you know teach everybody to check you know think twice about what they're going to do with the some mm-hmm. of these posts before they do them yeah hopefully and I think there's also the question of you know we don't really have time now to discuss it properly but you know the idea that people can co-opt these things by using them in bad faith so one of the things i saw suggested was that the movement of sharing the black squares or at least the movement of slapping the black lives matter hashtag on them was something started by the right or by right white supremacists consciously trying to ruin the black lives matter hashtag by flooding it with black squares now you know i have no idea whether that is true how that started uh, i can easily believe that once people realized it was a problem a lot of white supremacists started purposefully doing that after the fact um, so I, I don't want to say this is some grand conspiracy, but it does highlight again that just as a hashtag can be used sort of 
the way it's intended. Other people can hop on and share, you know, the wrong content in that hashtag or contrary to the view of that hashtag. And again, it's used both ways, you know. Uh, you know, I, I saw Blue Lives Matter trending today and looked out of curiosity, and it was a mix of people celebrating the police and other people hopping on using the hashtag to make fun of people celebrating the police. So, you know, it cuts both ways and, and, and all of that. But it's always a reminder that, like, going viral and hashtags and tools like that can by use, be used by people wanting to spread a message. But, you know, it's just as easy to sort of co-opt them and push them to do something they're not meant to do. Uh, but yeah, that's. I think we'll wrap it up from there. That's not a super cheery note, but I do think social media has been really good in the past week, and it's been uh, a really important tool for me. And I hope other people out there have been using it to to get informed on everything that's going on right now in a way that it feels like the media have sometimes done a good job of, but not always. Um, with with all the caveats we've been talking about in mind. Uh, yeah, we will be back next week. I'm sure. I have no idea what we're going to be talking about. I. Hopefully by then the Android 11 beta drop will have actually happened. So maybe we'll be back on that and maybe we'll have some more hardware announcements. It's hard to say right now how much is going to get announced given everything that's going on. This isn't really the time you want to launch a phone. So we will see. But we'll be back either way next week. So thank you for watching. Jump in the comments to let us know what you think about absolutely any of this. And I'll be there to chat through it all with you guys. Like and subscribe if you're a fan. Check out everything else on the channel. Yada, yada, yada. You know the drill. Uh, thank you for watching and thank you to Chris and to Anairon for joining me.